I'm Dr. Greg Winteregg, CEO of the Private Dentist Alliance. I want to talk to all of you students out there today who are wondering what your future is going to be like as a career in dentistry, as an assistant, as a hygienist, as a dentist, where is this profession going with the rapid increase of the DSO movement? I'm here to tell you the PDA is going to help you and I want you to become a member today. It is free. Now, why should you become a member? You're gonna get weekly video updates from me and you're gonna get regular updates of our newsletters from the Alliance on exactly what is happening and how we are going to help preserve and protect the private practice of dentistry. Now to me, the most important advantage is you are going to get access to our job board. What is that? Our private practicing members all have access to our PDA job board, which means if they have an opening in their private practice of assistant, hygienist, doctor, front office staff, they're going to be able to post it. And you're gonna be able to check up regularly. And as our membership grows, we're gonna be covering larger and larger territories across the United States. If you are looking for a job in any position in the office of a private practice, you need to become a student member today. It is free. Go to www.privatedental.org and become a student member today. You're gonna to love your benefits. Do it now. is up guys it's your boy Matt Havis back at again with the dental student advice podcast and today we have a very special interview for you kind of a different take on how we normally do interviews but we think you'll enjoy it so we had Travis Hornsby the founder of student loan planner on and we had him conduct a consultation for new dentist Dr. Lori Gruskin and it was a super high yield interview he goes through everything you need to know in terms of student loan repayment to budgeting for cars, housing, shopping, and as well as a new take, how to plan for your wedding and the amount of money you should spend for it. Because at our age, you know, a lot of us are getting married. We have a lot of friends getting married. So these are things that we've covered and we hope you guys enjoy it. We hope you guys learn something. We know we learned a ton from speaking with Travis. So as always, follow us on Instagram at dental.student.vibes. Give us a like, comment, share it with a friend. Let us know what we can do to make this the best podcast we can for you. So let's remember to stay safe and vibe on. Welcome back to another episode of the Dental Student Vibes podcast. I'm Seth Kalish. I'm here today with Matt Havis. And we have two very special guests with us. Dr. Lori Gruskin just graduated. And our very special guest from Student Loan Planner, Mr. Travis Hornsby. How are you guys doing today? Travis, Lori? Good, thanks. Doing well. Can't complain. <laughs> yeah, we had a little trouble there uh, setting everything up, but we got it all going. So today, um, I'm very excited to kind of just be a fly on the wall while you guys talk about student loans. Travis, you are the number one expert on student loans. I mean, you're the only person I've heard talk. I mean, you've been on a ton of podcasts and you say some real great stuff. You've got some great advice for students. So I'm really excited to hear what you've got to say. Yeah, excited to dig into Lori's loan situation. Uh, so I 
guess my first question is always to tell me about yourself. So Laurie, if you want to share a little bit about what's going on with uh, your life, professionally, personally, loan-wise, that's, that's kind of how I like to get started. So do you want to know like where I'll be working and what my salary will be like that? Yeah. Yeah. And feel free to anonymize however much you want. So I have 400,000 in loans from dental school altogether. And I'm going to be starting at Aspen whenever I have my license and DEA license, hopefully within the next two, three weeks, ideally. And the daily rate there will be 550 a day. I could possibly make more from like the profit and loss statements, but it'll be like the minimum salary is 550 a day, which I think equates to about 140,000 a year. It's not bad with all the stress the dental market's under from a labor perspective, right? Right. So I'm going to recalculate it right now, actually. 550 times five times, say, 50 weeks, 137,500. Okay, so certainly a, a little above average for an associate salary. So that's really good. That's that's uh, that's that's definitely a positive. Uh, what about potential future, you know, family plans in terms of like marriage? Because you know, when you're paying your loans, uh, the way the government designed the program, your spout, future spouse's income and debt is highly relevant to figuring out what you should do. So if you're able to guess anything about that what would you say so my as of now future spouse will have four hundred thousand dollars in loans so combined we'll have around eight hundred thousand together okay and okay. My, he will graduate in two years so i'll have worked for two years prior to him working okay and then will he have a similar income and similar career goals as you or what would you say about that i think ours align i think his are even more driven than mine because i would like to be an associate for or like work for someone for two to three four years and i think he it's actually seth um he wants to own a practice as soon as possible so here's some thoughts so you both have four hundred thousand of dental school debt combined that's eight hundred thousand what I typically tell people under the current rules is you'd really want to be making more than $800,000 combined to justify paying that off instead of pursuing loan forgiveness. So there's a couple reasons for that. One is I don't think that the tax bomb, which is the amount that you have to pay when your loans are forgiven, right now under current rules, you have to pay income taxes on that amount. So if you were paying, you know, percentage of your income and then you have this big amount forgiven, you have to pay income tax on that. I ultimately don't think they're actually going to take that money. So what does that mean for, for you, Lori? It means that basically you have two choices. You can pay, you know, $4,000 a month for 10 years and be done with your loans, or you can pay, you know, $7,000 a month, maybe it'd be done in five years. Or alternatively, you can pay 10% of your income and try to get that 10% payment a lot lower by being smart with tax planning. So that's kind of a high level. So what are the chances that y'all combined will make more than $800,000? There's a possibility that you will, but if you were, and you weren't reducing that to a much lower number through careful tax planning, then that would be a little surprising, right? So one thing that I would say is if you're looking at forgiveness versus refinancing, deciding between that decision, it's to me, pretty straightforward that you would do forgiveness versus refinancing. 
even if you happen to be particularly successful. And the theory is, is if you become practice owners and say you're making 500,000 a year, you could probably get that down to three or 400,000 of taxable income with careful tax planning. And student loan payments are ultimately just a percentage of your taxable income. So any questions about that so far? I'm a little confused altogether, to be honest. Like I, I know you said that there's the choice of $4,000 a month or 7,000. And that would be if we wanted to pay off our loans completely. But then you mentioned loan forgiveness of 10% of our salary. Like I'm just a little confused. Sure. So you can, when you graduate, you can just choose to pay 10% of your income towards your student loans. After 20 to 25 years, any remaining balance is forgiven. And if you're working in the private sector, that forgiveness, so say, for example, you're paying $1,000 a month and say you do that for 20 years. Okay. So, you know, $1,000 a month, 12000 a year for 20 years, that's 240000 Right. So that's a lot less than 400000 So that means you would still have a balance that would be left over after 20 years of payments. That would be forgiven and you'd have to pay income taxes on any leftover balance that's remaining. So if there so was the $250,000 remaining, what would I pay on that at the end? So you, assuming you're living in Florida, you'd probably have to pay it at the top federal tax rate. So right now that's 37%. Probably it might be more like 40% to 50% at the time you know, when your loans would be forgiven. So let's say that you have, a, and it's going to be higher than 260 or whatever, because there's also interest that accumulates, right? So that balance that you would have left over would, would be significantly higher than that, probably anywhere from you know, 400 to 600,000. So you would have that forgiven and you'd have to pay income tax of maybe you know, 200,000 or so uh, all at once. Now you might say, well, why, why would I pay 240,000 over 20 years plus pay you know, a big lump sum in taxes. So the reason why you might want to do that is because inflation. So things cost more over time. So if I have to buy a house in 20 years, I can guarantee you I'm going to have to pay a lot more than what I have to pay today. So for that same reason, the forgiven tax bomb of 200,000 or 300,000, whatever it is, it's actually going to be equivalent to a much lower figure represented in today's dollars. So that's a figure that I think even if you plan for forgiveness still makes more sense, but I think that it's not going to end up getting charged because I think ultimately they're going to eliminate that tax bomb. And so then it's just very straightforward. It's two choices. You can pay your loans based on your income for 20 years and then anything left over would be forgiven. Or you can say, well, because I'm going to pay my loans back in full before that 20 years is up, it makes more sense to get a lower interest rate and just try to pay my loans off. And you know, a good time frame to try to pay your loans off is probably anywhere from five to 15 years. If you're doing 20 years, then why not roll the, the dice with forgiveness? So that's kind of my thought process. And then, you know, with 400,000 loans, if you paid 4,000 a month, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's going to get your loans done in about 10 years. That's a lot, right? If you're making 140,000 a year after taxes, let's say that's about 100,000. So you're talking about half of your income being eaten up by loan payments if you decided to pay your loans back. Right. So that, that would get in the way of some of your other goals, I'm going to guess. I mean, yeah, because that's living on a much lower salary. Right. I mean, you probably want to save some money, prepare for 
you know, your adult life, finally making an income, right? Probably maybe buy a car, prepare to buy a house. I mean, what are some of your goals that you're looking forward to in the first, say, five years out of school? In the first five years, ideally, well, I'm going to go work for Aspen. So that is going to be for the only the beginning of my career. And then ideally, I'd like to become an associate and then either buy into a group. I'd ideally like to buy into a group practice. I don't know if right now, prior to children, would be best for me to own a practice on my own because I'm a female since I'm going to have children. And then like, if I was a solo practitioner, who's going to take over when I have kids. So I think ideally being part of a group practice would be best in the beginning of my career, since that's when I'll more than likely be having children. So that's a goal, a goal within the first three months of working would be to get a car because I've always wanted a luxury car. So I'd love to hear what you think about that. And then I'd say, I guess maybe around the age of 35 to 37, I would like to have my big dream home. I don't know if that's like an aggressive goal because, you know, my future husband's going to be a dentist too. So like would having that three quarters of a million or a million dollar home at the age of 35 be too aggressive of a goal? And to be able to still live comfortably and save so a couple thoughts on that. Nothing that I heard is at all compatible with the idea of uh, paying four thousand a month on your student loans, right? So you want to have the dream house, you want to have a nice car, you want to get rewarded for all the work that you did in school, right, Laurie? Right. And four thousand dollars a month in student loans is going to get in the way of all of that, especially if you want to save anything for a secure retirement. Right. So that's kind of showing why the forgiveness plan is a better option. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in terms of like how you would go about doing those things and what the goals and the, the kind of the, you know, which, which things you do first. So you do need to have an emergency fund first. Right. So you do need to have an emergency fund before buying any kind of luxury vehicles or anything like that. So, you know, three months worth of saving probably adequate. So if you can save around $20,000 in the bank, you know, hopefully you have a little bit of leftover loan money you could use to sort of jumpstart that emergency fund. But okay. it would be a good idea to try to get about 20000 in the bank before you decide to upgrade anything. Okay. So I would say while you're working towards that goal, it'd be good to put 5% of your income into your retirement account, which is going to be your 401k. And then also you're going to want to set up an investment account outside of your 401k. And that can be done simply through a company like Vanguard or Betterment. Okay. The good, new, the good news is you don't have to put a lot into those companies. You can just put $100 a month into one of those companies just to get started and just ask it to be automated. For someone like you that I'm going to assume is not super into stock investing, is that fair? That's very fair. Yeah. So I would probably assume Betterment would be a better company for you to use for your investment account. Betterment? That's, Betterment. Yeah, betterment.com. So you can do that on your own. So you don't need any, any, you know, guidance for that. You can just literally sign up and then have them deduct automatically a hundred dollars a month from your account. Eventually that hundred a month needs to be probably a thousand a month just to make sure you have more than enough to cover the future tax bomb. But for now we want to leave that at a hundred a month. Okay. So start with a hundred and then go to a thousand. Yeah. But a hundred a month, until some of these other goals are achieved and then 5% into retirement. Right. And then, so and, and you're, 
401k retirement. And yeah, and then you're working towards that $20,000 emergency fund. Okay. So, and also no credit card debt would be the other thing. Um, but so once you've achieved no credit card debt and, and, uh, and you've gotten the 5% into retirement, 100 a month in the non-retirement account, and you got the uh, no credit cards and the emergency fund set in place, now you're okay to go buy a luxury vehicle. Now, um, what I would suggest is uh, not buying a vehicle new. Some people, that's something that, you know, they don't want to do. I mean, I was looking for, uh, you know, a Volvo XC90, something big, bulky, high safety ratings, because my wife and I are having our first baby. So we're excited. You know, we're trying to get something nice. But a brand new Volvo SUV is about $80,000. And if we buy one that's two years old, we can, I found one under warranty still uh, for 40000 So sure. that's a big deal because, you know, 40000 after taxes is, you know, equivalent to maybe, uh, you know, eight, nine months worth of work, maybe, or six months worth of work, right? So the difference between the 2018 and the 2020 is probably not big enough for you to volunteer at the dental practice for six months. So right. that would be a suggestion. You don't have to follow it, but it would be a suggestion to look for something, you know, one to three years old for the luxury vehicle. I and think um, like if you have enough cash to purchase something. Sorry, I was thinking like 30 to 35,000 because I wanted to get like a SUV that was a year or two old, like an Audi or something like that. That was my. Idea. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it probably would need to be probably idea yeah it probably would need to be more like two years old but uh you know for that price range but you probably could find something that would work for that um right. I, I i like to tell people if you have the cash to just pay cash on craigslist because of how much of a better deal you get versus going through a dealership but that's not really an option for a lot of new grads so i think that's a decent plan so you've got your car and then the next thing is you know you want to be an associate for a couple of years so Ideally, that 5% into retirement would eventually grow to being 19500 into retirement. So it's about seven fifty per paycheck. So if you can make sure about seven fifty per paycheck is going into your 401k, you're going to guarantee that your retirement in your 60s is going to be taken care of. Okay. So that's not, not something that you think about right now, but it's super important later down the road that you have that, you know, set up. So once you've achieved the max into your retirement account, now you need to think about your tax bomb account. So remember that thing that I had you set up way back $100 a month. So right. now that thing needs to be a thousand a month. So a thousand, a thousand dollars a month and the max retirement accounts. Now your finances are set up well enough that if you can afford to do those two things, then you can afford to do anything. So your timeline about when to partner, when to be in a group practice should be determined based off of your life circumstances and what's best for you at this point. And in terms of you buying that house, uh, what I'll tell you is that I tell people if you buy a house more than two times your household income, so let's say you're both working, both making 200K, you know, times two and then times two for, you know, this ratio that I'm telling you. So that's an $800,000 house. So if you go above $800,000, you can expect to work into your mid-60s. If you go below that, then you can expect to work into your mid-50s. So that's a general rule of thumb. So if you know, if you, if you know that and your dream home is a you know, $600,000 home, then 
you're in great shape to do that as soon as you uh, have someone else's income that can go along with yours to get a mortgage, basically. Okay. Um, so, so that would be the, the thought process is, you know, rent until you're ready to settle down. And, you know, in terms of rent, it's generally better to split the expense with someone. Maybe that's a significant other, but maybe that's roommates, whatever it is. It's generally a pretty good idea to keep yourself very flexible before you're ready to buy into a practice and settle down somewhere because you, you kind of want those things to happen at a similar time. So I'll just give you an example. Let's say you found a perfect opportunity for a, a group practice purchase uh, buy-in, but it's an hour away from where you bought your house, right? Now you bought your dream house, transaction cost to sell it would be pretty high and that would be pretty difficult for you to uh, get a good deal. Right. Right. Um, you'd take a big hit with the transaction costs uh, for, for switching houses. So for that reason, I suggest that you wait uh, until you figure out your practice that you're looking to, to buy into if you are looking to do that to buy at the big house. So right. that's just suggestion. It doesn't have to be that time frame, but that, that's, the, uh, that's the thought process. Okay. So questions so far. So start with putting $100 a month into the investment fund. And should I start putting 1000 like as soon as I can? Or is there like a certain period, like time that would be best to, like when would I start doing 1000 Like if I could do 1000 right away, should I do 1000 right away? Because with the forgiveness plan, if I'm only putting in a thousand, paying $1,000 a month in loans, I'm still going to have like a great surplus of other money left over. That's a good question. And what I would say is first focus on your 401k. So get the 401k going with 750 a paycheck. And if you feel like you can do that right off the bat, then do that right off the bat. And 750 a paycheck is what you'd want to focus on first for the 401k. And then if you still have money left over, then put the thousand dollars a month right away into the investment account instead of a hundred. So if you feel like you can jumpstart those two things, that's fine. The only thing that I would say is remember also that you have to build up your emergency fund to $20,000 before you should be buying that luxury vehicle. So if your goal is to buy the luxury vehicle by November, you probably want to keep your thousand a month to a hundred a month and your 19,500 or 750 a paycheck, probably down to 5% of your paycheck so that you'll have a lot of excess funds that will be going into savings so that you'll still be on track to buying that car in November. Okay. So then maybe after I bought, get the car, then I'll put a thousand dollars a month in per se. What? Right. Yeah. And, and, and doing the, this and doing the 750 per paycheck into the retirement account. Okay. I'm just taking notes. That's good. That's what, what we do when we're doing the real thing. Right. Yeah. So Travis, so, um, good information so far. Um, let me just kind of backtrack to what you were saying about a car. So a lot of students have asked us, can you buy a car under your LLC or under your practice and just, you know, kind of write it off there. What are your thoughts about doing that? Um, Cause some students have said like, can, should I just wait like a couple of years until I buy it and until I buy the practice and then buy the car through the practice. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, my thoughts are if you don't have kids, then, you know, the, the, the kind of car you're going to want when you have kids is going to be different from the kind of car you're, you're going to have now. Like, so I'll just use myself as an example, like up until the point where my wife and I had having a child, we don't really feel like we needed the big SUV, like a, a sedan was fine, you know, 
Um, and so, I mean, there could be an argument for waiting on the SUV until you do a buy-ins. You know, I'll say that deducting the vehicle expense is a is a debatable thing in this CPA community. I've heard people say it both ways. I've heard some people say that's a little bit too aggressive. That's personal use. You can't do that. Other people have said, well, if you do X, Y, and Z, then you can show it's used more for the business than any other thing. And then, you know, you can use it. So, I mean, I'll say that's kind of like, you know, the tax deduction just shouldn't be the influencing factor. Like, you know, if, if you love, if you love cars and you're already got a, you've already got a practice that's producing a ton of income for you and you're well above average for the average practice owner income, go buy your car. And if you can deduct it, great. If you can't, it doesn't matter. But if you're an associate just starting out, you know, just, uh, just, just kind of realize that, you know, if you, if you sign up for the, you know, the brand new vehicle, that's one of the worst things that you could do straight out of the gate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And that's, thank, thank you for bringing that up. Cause uh, who said that Tom Wheelwright or it was like some Tom Wheelwright Kiyosaki conversation. And they said, you're uh, you should not uh, direct your purchases and all that stuff according to tax deductions. Like that's not how you should live your life. According to tax deductions, you should do, you know, whatever's best for your business first. And um, okay. So first of all, before all this, congrats on uh, having a baby. Wow. That's, that's awesome. Pretty, pretty scary during the COVID era, right? Yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's incredible. I mean, what, when did you say they're the babies do September? So, you know, you caught me a month before paternity leave. So, you know, anybody <laughs> listening to this, I'm, I'm taking a month of paternity leave. Uh, so, you know, if you book, you know, later than September 1st, you know, you'd be working one of the team members, but I am coming back in uh, probably in October uh, sometime. So I'm just taking a little bit of a break. You know, the, the good, the good news now student loan planner is big enough to exist without me. So we have a team of people and they do, the vast majority of the work and uh there's just you know a couple kind of business operations kind of things i'm gonna i'm gonna try to set up and make sure it just kind of runs on autopilot that's kind of when i heard laurie talking about you know wanting to join a group practice um i, I think that you know don't underestimate the ability to just pay cash to fix problems i mean you know if, if you did find a really lucrative practice and you're just looking for somebody to cover the business for you for two months there's plenty of options out there for that you know locums type jobs so I, I understand where you're coming from. It's a real personal preference, what somebody wants to do. Um, but uh, but I, I will say be cautious a little bit because, and I can say this because Aspen is a big DSO. So just these, any kind of like DSO groups, like some of them try to pitch you on like ownership, like owning some of their stock basically and, and opening multiple offices with them and growing your income that way. And that's not necessarily a terrible thing, particularly if you're married to another dentist who's doing more of a traditional, you know, solo practitioner route. But the, the, the promises that I've always seen for DSO, you know, practice ownership and partnership agreements don't usually live up to the hype, in my opinion. You know, just basically they kind of promise you the moon and tell you how great things are going to be. But ultimately, you have to realize that whenever you enter into a, an agreement that's not just a straight up equal partnership, you're basically trading marketing services and, you know, HR services and software for, you know, a percentage of revenue in a fixed costs business. And right. that's... That's not, that's not, you know, I mean, there's a reason I don't like to pay people in my business a percentage of revenue. It's because it's way more expensive than just paying to get the service uh, in your business. And so that's how these DSOs are so profitable is they know that they can go out and hire the dentists. And that's the hard part is doing the dentistry. The easy part, even though <laughs> dentists don't feel this way, is the, uh, the marketing and the software and the HR and stuff like that. And simply the reason it's easy is just because you can hire people to do it. 
Right. And I mean, exactly what you said. That's the problem is that dentists think that that's the hard part, but they don't teach any of that stuff to us in school. Like we don't have any sort of business courses. I mean, we, we have, we got a business club, you know, but, um, we don't learn that stuff. And so that's one of the things that we're trying to bring to our community, our audience, uh, is people like you who are very knowledgeable and just give your advice because you're going to be helping, you know, thousands and thousands of people. So well, let me suggest this. So, you know, coronavirus aside, besides the coronavirus, which sounds like a cop-out, the default rate for dental practices is like 0.3% historically. So three in 1,000 dental practices fail. So three in 1,000 failure rate, you know, find me anything and you would love those odds, right? Like if I had a, you know, a stage four cancer diagnosis and they told me my survival odds were 99.7%, I'm celebrating right? Because yeah, there's a risk that something bad could happen, but it's such a low risk, relatively speaking, that I'm, I'm fine, right? Uh, so, so that's the kind of thing that people should know about ownership and like the fact that you didn't get taught those things, Seth, in school, is the good news is you picked a career where you don't have to be a genius marketer to survive and make a good living. People need dentistry. You know, if people, uh, people can only go so far, even in a pandemic, right? Somebody, uh, you know, goes out and they're, you know, doing uh, I don't know, target shooting with BB, BB guns or something and they shoot something that knocks all their teeth out, like, you know, or there's some sort of ache or pain, you know, people just can't stop drinking, right? Because it's a pandemic and people are depressed. So people are just downing, you know, Jack Daniels in one hand and Mountain Dew two liter in the other, right. you know, that's going to cause a lot of problems that y'all will need to fix down the road at some point, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I know people are not going on dates right now, but eventually, you know, those chipped front teeth are going to have to get fixed if, you know, people want to, be able to get anybody to go out with them. Right. So I'm joking around, but, uh, <laughs> but it's like, you know, you guys have a very valuable skill and it's a skill that's not easily competed with because you have to get a license and take on 400,000 of debt to get it. So that's a very valuable thing. And I, I want to really stress that. So the thing is, is yeah, the marketing, yeah. The, the HR stuff, you learn that, but guess what you have, you have iTunes and Spotify and podcasting, right? So at point and you'll find it, right? You'll find it about dental marketing or HR solutions or collecting doubtful accounts. Like you'll find an episode about that with some good podcast. And the cool thing about dental podcasts is I've yet to find one that's like really lousy. Like they're all pretty good. Right. So, you know, you can just go in there and look up whatever thing you're trying to learn about and listen to it that you've learned enough to to do it. Cause again, you're not looking at like in a pizza shop where you've got a 50% failure rate, it's a, it's a 0.3% failure rate. So, I mean, with that kind of odds, all you got to do is just like Google and just listen to a couple hours of something and just give it a go. And it's probably going to work out. Right. Right. Uh, so go I ahead, Lori. I have some more questions for you, actually. So if I'm going to go and do the forgiveness plan, um, well, what about refinancing? Like would I refinance it all then? So you would not refinance. The reason is because when you refinance, you take away all federal forgiveness options and re repayment options. So when you refinance, yeah, you get a lower interest rate, but now you have to pay that 4,000 a month we were talking about. So if you refinance, loan forgiveness doesn't exist. Correct. Now, one thing I think you should do now that you've just graduated is consolidate your loans. So consolidation is different from refinancing. Seems like it would be the same thing, but it's actually different. So what a consolidation does is it just takes all of your loans you've ever had and it just puts them into one loan that's easy to manage and easy to keep track of. It doesn't change anything about the interest rate. It doesn't change anything about the, uh, the terms or anything. 
So what you can do to do that is just go to studentaid.gov, okay. studentaid.gov, and then there's a little thing at the top that says manage loans, and you can hover over that, and it's got a bunch of drop downs, and you'll see one pretty clearly that says apply for consolidation. And then you just literally go through that step-by-step -step process where they're going to ask you your name and, you know, address and check all the loans you want to include. And it'll be pretty obvious that you'll want to include all of them. And then you just go through that loan application process and that'll consolidate your loans. And, you know, they'll ask you what payment plan you want to select. You're going to want to choose pay as you earn is what I would suggest because pay as you earn is going to give you the 20 year forgiveness instead of the 25 year forgiveness with the revised pay as you earn. Okay. So then, I'll so, and then how do I defer the loans? Because you can technically defer for six months following graduation, right? So you're actually, right. You're not going to want to defer actually, because by deferring your payments are zero a month with income based repayment right now. And they're also zero if you defer, but deferment doesn't count. So you might as well get credit towards forgiveness and pay zero a month rather than defer and get no credit for forgiveness. So that's why I'm suggesting doing the consolidation after you've graduated. The reason is because what you can do is, you know, have you earned your first paycheck yet? No. Okay, so you, you currently do not have an income then technically. Right. So what you can do is go to that consolidation application and complete it, and they're going to ask you for proof of income. And for proof of income, you can simply give your tax return. And your tax return from last year, and if you haven't filed one, you can still go in and file one uh, you know, because you didn't make an income, presumably. So when you submit your proof of income, uh, you will be able to claim a $0 taxable income, which is going to result in a payment, which is 10% of zero. And 10% of zero is zero. Right. So now you've got a $0 payment locked in for 12 months. And but During those 12 months, if I want to pay some money towards it, is that necessary? Like, is that a good idea? It's going to be a bad idea. And the simple reason is, is that you want to do one of two things, pay the loan off really fast or pay it with forgiveness. And paying it with forgiveness means pay as little as possible rather than as much as possible because you want to get more forgiven rather than less forgiven. Right. Okay. And also you want to think about your student loans are either a debt or a tax. If they're a debt, you want to just pay them off. But for most dentists with the size of the debt, especially at private dental schools and higher cost dental schools, it's really better to think about the debt as a tax. So you're going to have to pay 10% of your income for 20 years. And at the end of those 20 years, it's forgiven, right? So if you're paying an income tax, paying extra on your loans is akin to paying a higher amount in income taxes when all you owed was, you know, 50,000, but you decided you wanted to pay 80. Well, that 30,000, you're not going to get a gold star for. You just lost that money that you could have used for something that actually benefited you. Okay. And your loan balance is going to grow. It's going to get big and that's okay because you're joining 3 million other people in America that have more than 100,000 of student loan debt. Right. So 3 million people having six figures of student loan debt, that's a problem that got created when they'd never capped borrowing for student loans. So if they capped borrowing, the dental schools would only have say 150,000 to work with and they would only be able to probably get approved for that amount and they'd have to keep costs down. But on the flip side, maybe a lot of dental schools that currently are in business might go out of business if they had to only charge 150,000 because of all the, you know, expensive startup costs and 
faculty costs and things like that. So at the worst case scenario, you can think about your income, 137,500 and knock off like 10% of it. And that's your net income as a dentist, debt free. So in other words, just take away 10% off of your income and assume that's for the loans. And then maybe also additionally, in your case, take off $1,000 a month for that investing account for the tax bomb in the future, just in case. And then whatever that net number is, that's the number that you want to compare against if you had just gotten a bachelor's degree and gotten a job straight out of undergraduate. And so I'm going to guess that 137500 minus 10% minus $1,000 a month is still a number that's probably double what you would have made as a undergraduate i would i would just you know for a typical like, undergraduate probably like triple and maybe maybe triple yeah so 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 triple the income for you know comparing those two jobs well then you made a great decision and if you at some point decide you don't want to be a dentist well i've got good news it's always a tax so it's a 10% tax whether or not you're being a dentist or whether or not you decide that you want to go and i don't know uh, become a professional scuba diving instructor or something i mean i'm just picking something random, right? So, so the good news is you can always think about your loans as, as a tax, which means that you would not let your student loans inhibit you any more than you would be inhibited if you lived in California paying 10% state income tax versus living in Florida. And certainly there's plenty of people in California that pay you know, higher income taxes than Floridians and live a good life and still hang out on the beach. <laughs> right. So then also with the loans and like bringing kids into the picture, like, so if I'm paying you know, like loan forgiveness. And then once I have children, like at least my parents had paid for like prepaid college and like put money away. So like, what are your thoughts on something like that as well? So I'm, a, I'm kind of a fan of, of putting money away in something like a 529 to at least cover undergraduate for, for a kid. Um, some of the, you know, den dentists I talked to actually kind of got screwed over because the undergraduates lo loan rules were if you borrow before October 2007, then you, you have a worse forgiveness plan offered to you. Okay. So it's, it's kind of nice being able to go into your graduate school with a clean slate. And undergraduate, that's possible if you're going into an in-state school. If you're okay. going to a out-of-state school, I would say, you know, uh, or a private school, I mean, it, it just kind of depends on your personal preferences, right? So, I mean, I would say if you don't want to support them, then they might not be able to go. Um, but the future of education, I have no idea what it'll be when my child is going to college. I have no idea um, because <laughs> it's already overpriced. So is it going to get even more overpriced or like, are people going to be able to do online courses and have the price fall a lot? Or are we going to have like an on the job training thing? Like what's, you know, kind of what I think might happen is you'll see more kind of apprenticeship type programs and like a, a decline of like, college at like the kind of like the, the everyman college kind of schools, like, you know, the schools that are not particularly selective that are just sort of people go there. Right. I think those schools will probably decline or go out of existence in a lot of cases. And I think that the, you know, flagship state universities and the community colleges and the, you know, elite, very, very elite colleges will stay around. And so maybe they'll charge similar prices. I don't know. But, but if you want to prepare for your child to go to college, then I would add to that list of things open a 529 and put $500 a month per child away for college. Per child per spouse? So a thousand a month or? Per, per child. Like, so 500 total in, in the marriage, like one kid. So $500 per month per child. 
Right. And, and, you know, if you're living in Florida, Florida prepaid is obviously an option. Um, and then you can do, you know, the, the 529 version, which is a little, uh, a little different, you know, so that's just, you're preparing for any, any school in the country versus, you know, a school in Florida. But, you know, if, uh, you know, that's just a good idea. If you're thinking, well, we want the, the kid to go to, you know, we want the kid to go to the most, you know, University of Miami or something. Well, you're going to need to save at least that $500 a month to make that happen. And then also, so the loan, I'll put like 5% into a 401k per month and then like 100 to up to maybe 1,000 in the investment. And then, so like, do you have recommended percentages of like that I should not want to exceed of my income for rent, for entertainment, for insurance, you know? Yeah, like what I, what I like to tell people is if you are thinking about trying to get pregnant, get term life insurance and get disability insurance right away because you can be alive and have to cover your own expenses, right? With disability insurance. Whereas if you have term life insurance, you no longer have to cover your own expenses. So, you know, get disability right away. Probably that's going to be a hundred dollars a month to 200 a month. It shouldn't be that expensive. That's going to be like about 250 a month for $7,150 worth of coverage. That's like the max I can get right now. Yeah. That would be best. I don't have life insurance yet because I don't have kids and I'm not married. Yeah, I would keep it that way. I mean, eventually you might get term life and make sure it's term. And then you should probably be paying, you know, 30 to $50 a month for it. Okay. So it, sh- it should not be, uh, it should not be some sort of three digit monthly number. If it is, it's whole life insurance and that's not what you need. So, you know, you just want to get something that's a two digit monthly number for your life insurance. And again, just get that in place well before you're thinking about trying to have kids because, um, you know, it's just a good thing to get in place before any potential, you know, we hope no complications, but you know, sometimes those things can happen right with pregnancy and it's harder to get insured. Um, best to get once I'm married, right? You, you could, I mean, you're only talking about 40, you know, 30 to $50 a month, right? So that's not that big of an expense. So if it's easier just to get it done and out of the way, then I would say, go do that. Um, if you're more of like, I'll remember to do it, you know, then you technically don't need the money until, you know, you have a kid. Um, Another question, this is, I guess, like kind of a detailed question that like, you might not know the answer. What would be a realistic amount of money to spend on a wedding without being crazy and like really breaking the bank? So my wife and I spent 15,000 in our wedding and we tried, we had to get creative to do that though. So we, um, we, got, we had the wedding in downtown New Orleans um, in the Garden District. And so the first thing for us was we wanted to find a place that would let us bring our own booze and, and food. That's probably number one, is right. being able to bring your own, uh, your own booze and food, because otherwise you'll get screwed. Second thing is get uh, uh, event insurance when we're eventually allowed to have in-person weddings again, uh, just because this was like a million-dollar mansion or something like that. And all I could think about was, one of my college buddies just getting totally wasted and accidentally, you know, setting a fire and burning the place down. Right. So, um, so we got coverage for that. It's usually like a couple hundred dollars for, you know, event insurance. And, uh, and then, so I think, you know, anything between 10 and 20,000 is reasonable for a wedding. I think you can do it for that. You're just going to have to follow that rule about making sure that no matter what the place lets you bring your own food and, and drinks. Um, and, and so that's, that's really the key. I mean, I don't really have any kind of, I mean, obviously you could go into a lot of detail with that, but I think that in general, just if, as long as you control that, you control what you need to. 
And that's kind of what personal finance is all about is not making like a gazillion rules. It's kind of like pick few, like pick like three to five and just try to live with those rules and, and that's it. And don't have to, you don't have to think about everything that way. So with the housing thing, you know, if you can keep your housing expenses to like 25% of your after-tax income or less, then you're in good shape. Okay. Um, 25% might be tough, but you know, 25% is kind of a good guideline, like a quarter of your income or less should be going to rent. And if you can't achieve that, uh, then maybe you need to be more creative. Maybe again, like roommates or significant other kind of thing, you know, you, you want to try to keep that, you know, rental cost is, you know, low. And then the good news about entertainment is I'm assuming everybody on the podcast is in their twenties. Right. Is that correct? Yeah. So, uh, so you're only in your twenties once and I just turned 30. So I, I can tell you that I already regret missing out on some things that I should have done in my twenties, you know? Um, so I like, I was in South Africa once they went diving with great white sharks in a cage. I, I don't see a lot of 30 something year olds doing that. The 20 something year olds do that. Right. So the idea is like you only are young once and you should live it up. You should have a really fun time. And the cool thing is, is if you're careful with your rental expense, then you can go blow a bunch of money on your entertainment budget and it's not going to matter that much. So kind of what I, what I like to, to say is especially like, um, I don't know what it is, you know, like about guys, but like, we'll, we'll go spend like $200 on a bar tab, you know, and <laughs> I, I have just, I've yet to see a woman do that unless she's doing it for like a bunch of girlfriends or something like, right. you know what I mean? Cause right <laughs> yeah, well, you know, no, no offense. Right. But you know, so <laughs> I, I'm just saying we're doing this for Laurie. We're not doing this for, for Matt or Seth, you know? So uh, so, right. so like a realistic amount of money to spend on the weekend to not feel guilty or like I do have a shopping addiction that needs to be put under control so like okay. shopping be under an entertainment thing you know like obviously like you said I didn't go to dental school take out all these loans to live like a poor person obviously like mm -hmm. if I wanted like I do have a goal of something I want to buy myself like for Hanukkah that yeah fifteen hundred dollars but like is that a bad idea no just set aside money for it so if you have a if you have a, a goal like what i would encourage you to do if you if you have like some of these things that you'd like to improve and you're like on a self-improvement binge is sign up for something like mint.com or sign up for something like you and that'll just basically help you plan for those goals that you want to spend money on and not feel guilty so for example my my wife's super into expensive dresses like she really likes it and she looks good like it's she, that's her, that's her thing. Right. And so the, the strategy there is we came up and agreed on like an amount of money per month that she can go and spend guilt-free. And that's kind of the point is to enjoy life and not restrict yourself to rice and beans and goodable clothing. You know, I mean, that works for some people, maybe like myself, but you know, most, most people want more than that. Right. So, uh, so, so it's kind of like come up with that monthly amount, you know, and just figure out what you're comfortable with. And I think, you know, for, I would say clothing, anything between 200 and a thousand a month is probably real reasonable. You know, if you're, if you're, you know, anything it's a wide range, cause it just depends on how important it is to you, you know, just kind of keep in mind that for every thousand dollars a month you're spending, that's equivalent to like, kind of like a month and a half at the dental office. Right. So if, you know, so I guess maybe another way to look at it is like every $200 extra per month that you're adding to spending is like a week at the dental office that you lost. If, if that I, makes sense. For the weekend, like say between Seth and I, like $200 a weekend was spent, but like obviously he's still in school and I'm not. So like if I put 150 towards it and he put like 50, you know, just to like put something towards it, 
So if I spent like $600 a month on entertainment, is that ridiculous? No, actually the, well, the goal would be to have Seth borrow it through student loans and to have it all come out of Seth's expense. So that would be the ideal is for you to not have to put anything on there because that money actually is money that's not getting invested, right? Whereas money that is coming out of student loans, you're going for forgiveness with. So like sometimes I have people that borrowed for school that like were like, yeah, I wish I had partied less in dental school. And then it's kind of awkward because I have to tell them, well, actually, you probably should have partied more because you're just <laughs> going for forgiveness anyway. So, you know, if you have an extra $50,000, like it wouldn't have really made much of a difference at all. And so, you know, that $50,000 would have bought you a lot of extra drinks. I mean, heck, you could have bought your class a few drink rounds, you know, and, and it would have been fine. So I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but I, I think that the, the 200 a weekend is no problem at all. I've never seen somebody's budget be busted because of that. So I'm not worried about it, Lori. Uh, I'm worried about the car expense and the housing expense, and that's it. So if you try to be as frugal as you possibly can be on the housing and the car stuff, you can go, you know, I mean, the good news is, is like you can only drink so much until your liver fails and then you have to stop, right? Whereas, you know, housing expense, uh, that doesn't really stop. It's like, oh, now I have a $40 million house, right? I mean, when you're super rich, whereas with, with you know, even rich people do not spend more probably than a certain amount of money on booze just because you just physically cannot. So that's one, that's one, that's one reason, you know, some of the guys are looking at me like, you know, test me, right? But, you know, but, but the thing is, is, you know, that's why it, all you have to worry about is the cars and the houses and everything else kind of falls into place if you're careful with those two things. I just have one more question. So once I put like the money into the investment fund, the retirement fund, rent and whatever, say I have $3,000 left, would it be best to put that into a savings or put that $3,000 like into the investment? Maybe a little bit of both, maybe a little bit into savings, a little bit into investments, right? Whenever you're kind of unsure what to do, you know, don't put anything towards the loans, but maybe like when you're trying to decide between, do I pay off my car loan? Do I put it into my savings? Do I put it into investments? Maybe do a little bit of all three. There's, there's, not, a, there's not a wrong answer. The, the main thing is savings rate. So if that money's going into growing your wealth, like savings, investments, paying down car loans, paying down credit cards, any of those are good decisions. The, the decision that you want to compare it against is going out and spending the money, which is going to set you back. Okay. So just not spending it ideally would be the most ideal and putting it in to those things. Right. But, but, but again, don't feel guilty about spending money. It's kind of like, again, get the big things right. The biggest two expenses in your budget, keep those cautious and everything else just go crazy. Okay. Great. Travis, I, I think you meant to say to just donate it to Matt whatever's left. Yeah. Yeah. So Venmo at, you know, whatever. You know. <laughs> Wait, what was the one that they did at uh, college game day where he had the sign with his Venmo yeah. on it? Yeah. Send, send, yeah. Send beer money. Yeah. I think that, I think that guy, uh, I don't know. I can't remember. I think that guy had some troubling Twitter posts or something. So then he had to donate it to some oh my <laughs> God, char of charity or so. So if just in case you get a couple hundred thousand on Twitter or on Venmo, you got to go check your Twitter make sure you, you know, you haven't said anything stupid. Right. Um, but, uh, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the good news is, you know, you picked a good career. Uh, even if there's a lot of pressure with dentistry, you know, it's, it's, you're still way better off than the, you know, a lot of other people out there. And right. it's not like it's, you know, the 1970s and people are making money hand over fist and dental practices cost nothing. But, uh, but at the same time, you have the internet. So like what I like to tell people is like, yeah, you have more, you have a difficult path, a little bit more difficult path than people back in the day, maybe. Right. But, but then again, you also have more opportunity. So what I would really say is like, 
you have more variance. Right. And and that scares people sometimes because you're like, oh shoot, like I don't have this easy path to making three hundred thousand like my family friend or uncle or somebody that I you know admired as a dentist. But you can still have whatever path you want. And the cool thing is is that that path now includes, you know, women, people of color, right? Dentistry's opened a lot more people than it used to be too. It's not just old white guys anymore. Right. So, uh, so, you know, so I think that's, that's cool. You know, you can kind of live whatever life you want to live anything from working part-time Remember, because student loans are a tax. So for example, Lori, if, or, or Seth, if y'all wanted to work two days a week, make 60,000 a year and pay a 10% tax and you had your expenses, you know, within the real realm of what they needed to be. Um, you know, how many teachers would kill to work two days a week and make the same amount of income. Right. So that's an option. And then also working six days a week, making 350,000 a year is also an option. So you can't ask for more than that. I gotcha. So th- first of all, thank you so much. Like you've given so much great detail. Um, Lori, that was very applicable bringing up the thing about um, a wedding. Cause I feel like so many students push off their weddings until after dental school. Like that, how many friends do you have right now that are getting married? You know, so Travis, last uh, couple questions for you. Can you give us um, some good resources that you like uh, for some information for students? And then of course, uh, how to reach out to you and your company. Splinter Podcast is our show and we cover things like this all the time. So people will probably enjoy listening to that if they like listening to this show. Uh, and in the Student Loan Planner blog, which is just studentloanplanner.com, you can check that out. Other, other resources, uh, you know, I like all the podcasts out there. I think that's just great to just binge a lot of those. So, you know, Dentistry Uncensored, um, Shared Practices, um, Dentalpreneur, those are the couple of the ones that I like to listen to. Uh, so I think just, you know, having a regular diet of dental podcasts is, is probably a good idea. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think that in terms of just like general uh maybe just general stuff. I mean, I think that, and that's, that's really, I guess, most of the stuff I can think of. I mean, if you listen to those podcasts, you're going to learn everything. Um, and then in terms of the student loans, obviously we do paid consults where, you know, we get even more granular than I can get on a podcast and we'll do screen sharing and I'll show people resources. And Lori, I might just, if I have, if I had extra time, I probably would look for like some examples of luxury cars that, you know, <laughs> you know, that might be kind of fun to look at, you know, so, but we really do focus on the students. We get a plan for that. Um, so if somebody's interested, you know, so if somebody's interested in that, you know, we generally save people a projected a hundred times what the few hundred dollar fee is um, just because people just are not aware of the options. So that's uh, studentloanplanner.com slash help. So just go studentloanplanner.com slash help. You'll learn all about that. And uh, yeah, like you said, that's, few hundred bucks and catch me before paternity leave. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Thank you so much for this information. This was really good. Hello. So yeah, I'm sorry, it just froze on me there. I'm back, I think. No, no, thank you very, very much for all the information because this put everything like into perspective and now I have like a path to go because like now I'm just gonna go log on to student a.gov and consolidate my loans right now because I might as well so yeah that's what I'm gonna literally what I'm gonna do when we hang up so thank you very very much for your time do you have an email address like if I had any questions that you would respond to 
yeah, well, so for the, for the, anybody on the podcast can email us at help at studentloanplanner.com and, uh, and we'll reach out to you. And, uh, Laurie, in your case, just kind of mentioned that we had already spoke, spoken, um, okay. you know, because the good news is we get a lot of questions, <laughs> you know, or a lot, a lot of people reaching out, you know, I mean, that's a good problem to have, but it, you know, I, I can't be in there answering in the emails all day. So we have, you know, my, my assistant helps me with that. Um, so just, you know, but to reach out, like, seriously, if anybody's listening to this, send us an email and, uh, and, uh, and just, you know, tell us about your situation and, and we'll be frank with you. If we think you're an obvious refinancing case, we're not going to ask you to pay a few hundred bucks for a detailed analysis. So I'm just going to send you to the refinancing page to just shop for lower rates. If you're unsure, you know, I'll help. I can pretty well identify that in an email and I'll tell you that you need to book a plan. Uh, but you know, people that work with us, uh, don't have anxiety about their loans after they get through the details, just cause you just need a clear plan. And once you have that plan, you can move on and just focus on the other more important things in life. Yeah. I mean, I feel like kind of relieved now in all honesty. So yeah. Thank all right. You. Thank you so much, Travis. And thank you, Lori. All right, guys, it's Matt Havis again, and I hope you guys enjoyed this interview with Travis Hornsby and Dr. Lori Gruskin as we sit down and see how a consultation is done for student loan planning and budgeting. As always, follow us on Instagram at dental.student.vibes. Give us a like, comment, follow, share it with a friend. Let's make this the best podcast we can for you. And as always, stay safe and vibe on.